I'm Donnell Cannon. And I'm Jenny O'Mara. We're here to tell the hummingbird stories across our state of folks who are doing something. We explore how schools and communities work together to create transformative experiences with young people, work to bend the system, and chase the question, what will it take for every child in North Carolina to not only have a sound basic education, but to have catalytic experiences that drive them to step boldly into the futures they deserve and to create a better world. Join us as we interview school designers, community organizers, learning engineers, and education activists to learn what we should be thinking about when it comes to reimagining the future and the steps we can take today to create better schools, better childhoods, and better people tomorrow. We're here, we're ready. Together we have what it takes to set the world on a different path. Let's get started. Hey Hummingbird family. Welcome to another episode of the Hummingbird Stories. On this episode, Jenny and I sit down with Vichy Jagannathan and Seth Swagling, the co-founders of the Rural Opportunity Institute, to learn about the impact of trauma and the ways in which we can all pursue a pathway to healing. The Rural Opportunity Institute supports local agencies and organizations to understand their role in creating healing from trauma and help organizations design and pilot new policies and practices that lead to healing and to reimagine policies that may have caused trauma and harm. We're excited to have them join our Hummingbird family. Before we jump into the interview, we will hear Nikki Giovanni's poem, Always There Are the Children, read by Naeem Dubeshi. We're excited to jump in. And always there are the children. There will be children in the heat of day. There will be children in the cold of winter. Children like a quilted blanket are welcomed in our old age. Children like a block of ice to a desert sheik are signs of status in our youth. We feed the children with our culture that they might understand our travail. We nourish the children on our gods that they may understand respect. We urge the children on the tracks that our race will not fall short. But our children are not ours, nor are we theirs. They are the future. We are the past. How do we welcome the future? Not with the colonialism of the past, for that is our problem. Not with the racism of the past, for that is their problem. Not with the fears of our own status, for history that is not dictated as we welcome our young of all groups as our own with the solid nourishment nourishment of food and warmth we prepare this way of with the solid nourishment of self-actualization we implore all the young to prepare for the young because there will always there will be children All right, Hummingbird family, I am so excited uh, to be introducing two of our favorite humans right now, Seth Soigling and Vichy Jagannathan. Um, Seth and Vichy, welcome to the Hummingbird family, my friends. Um, Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, glad yeah. you're here. Um, so Seth and Vichy um, both have been teachers. They're two of the most thoughtful and courageous leaders I've ever known. Um, they're deeply committed to community, uh, to empathy, and to understanding. 
um, and they founded the Rural Opportunity Institute in Eastern North Carolina. So we're here to learn a little bit about their story and the work they've been up to. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and begin with our first question, friends. Who are you? Uh, yeah, I can get started. I'm, well, I'm BC Jagannathan, one of the co-founders of Rural Opportunity Institute. Um, I'm guessing you want a little deeper answer than that. So um, I think, yeah, I would also say that I just generally uh, am energized about thinking about how to kind of like bridge worlds and like how do we take a lot of the best like problem solving approaches we have in different places and then connect them to uh, just like what people feel to be the most pressing social challenges. So have, you know, have a lot of experience in like engineering and a lot of different spaces and have just tried to connect that stuff to Eastern North Carolina. So currently live in Rocky Mount and just uh, really excited to be working with Seth and kind of building this together. Awesome. Thanks, VG. What about you, Seth? Who are you? Yeah, I'm Seth. Uh, very grateful to live and work in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, former high school special education teacher. Really grateful that Warren County was my introduction to Eastern North Carolina. Just really inspired. I think there's assets everywhere in every community and really inspired by the assets of Eastern North Carolina. Uh, just almost like too many to keep in your head at one time like thinking about Warren County being the birthplace of the environmental justice movement, thinking about Edgecombe County being home to the first town founded by freed slaves after the Civil War. There's just such deep history here uh, and like such a history of resilience and just find that really motivating. Uh, really grateful to get to work on ROI with Beachy and the community in Tarboro and Edgecombe County. And just someone who's really hungry, hungry to learn, uh, love relationships, love people love sticky, complex, challenging situations and problems. And yeah. And I, I, I also have to get really personal here. So Seth um, was one of my first friends in North Carolina. So we, we, uh, we did Teach for America together in 2012 and uh, we really connected and it became really, really close in Houston and we're fired up for kids and fired up for rural communities and fired up for work we were we're going to leave back in Eastern North Carolina and uh, we've been locked since, man. And I'm just incredibly proud of the work that you and VT have been able to lead here in Eastern North Carolina and the, the way you've shown up for our kids and communities. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. And thank you for, for holding the charge. Thanks. Yeah. And, um, you know, Seth and I actually taught in the same classroom together for two years and, you know, VT and I also served in Teach for America together. So it has really been such a privilege to like see the work that y'all done for the past, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, so speaking of that work, would you each take a minute just to tell us, you know, what's your hummingbird story? Yeah, and Jenny, just I think back so fondly to the like how fun it was to get to teach together and <laughs> to get to be the like special ed teacher and you were the general ed math teacher and like co-teaching was just a highlight of life. That was so fun. Me. And like I still think about those kids all the time, our students like that was, yeah, just would go back to that in a heartbeat. That was awesome. <laughs> Same here. Uh, but yeah, for Hummingbird's, Hummingbird's story, uh, committed to a lot of different things and have, I think, and motivated by like a wide mission. But really specifically, I just am hungry to become like world-class at building the capacity of myself and others to intentionally dismantle oppression and bias and support people's healing from adversity to achieve health, safety, and self-determination for current and future generations. 
And a lot of that mission, I mean, it's been informed by every staff. It's been informed by being a high school special ed teacher. It's been informed by like the community members and leaders in Edgecombe County that we've ROI's done a big systems mapping process with. Um, but I just have an incomplete story that I'm always trying to learn more about and fill in. Um, but currently that story is rooted in like the original theft of like land and labor in America. And like a story of stealing from Native American tribes and stealing land and slaves and building like more wealth than the world has ever seen uh, for white people off of the backs of labor that wasn't theirs and off the backs of effort that wasn't theirs. And so I think that like is a guiding star, um, just like acknowledging that history and thinking that we all have like a different role to play in trying to change that and fix that original sin. that's like very much still with us today. Um, and yeah, just I, that mission is like connected to all of this science around like trauma and adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and I'm just really grateful that in the last few years have been exposed to like the science of how stress impacts our body and brain. And I really wish I would have known it when I was a classroom teacher. Like I think back Jenny to like the specific students in our class uh, that I feel like I failed. Like I did not know or understand how stress can impact our body and brain and how it can impact how we show up. And I think back to certain students and I like feel like I failed them because I didn't have this knowledge and I didn't have practices around regulating myself and getting like myself back online and then like helping kids to co-regulate and then self-regulate. Um, and so I don't know, Vichy, if you want to dig into the science a little more, but just like there's kind of core science that really has changed the way I view the world and changed the way I view myself and like people I work with around how stress impacts us all. Mm. Yeah, it's real. Um, I completely feel the same way about, uh, you know, even, even past our two years of teaching together. I mean, even as school leaders still, I recognize I have so much more to learn about this. Um, so I appreciate you naming that. What about you, Vichy? Will you tell us a little bit about your hummingbird story? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like the core of all of it is just about a, a quest for truth and like allowing myself and other people to kind of reclaim the narrative of like who we are and how we got here. Um, and a lot of that I think started with teaching for me. I maybe even, I mean, I, or at least that's probably where this became more of like a fully formed idea. Um, so like my parents are both immigrants from India. Um, and so as a result, like never really learned American history. Um, and so a lot of like my notions of what America is came from like what I learned in school. And then this kind of abstract idea of the American dream that a lot of immigrants have. Um, and I, so I went to high school and, you know, all of K-12 mostly in New York, came to North Carolina to teach high school and felt like the realities I saw in terms of um, disparities, like racial disparities, urban rural disparities were nothing like the, the American history that I learned. Like the American history that I learned was like, we are past racism. And like, that was a thing that happened. And now uh, everyone is equal and we all have equal access to this uh, amazing opportunities and all that stuff. I feel like that was reinforced by my parents who were like, work hard, study hard, and like, you can do whatever you want. And then 
I just feel like when you juxtapose that with like driving through Eastern North Carolina and knowing that many of our, like the ancestors that our students come from occupied that land in a really different way in the past and have never really acknowledged that. Um, like that was just difficult for me. I feel like that was like tearing a blindfold off and being like, yeah, we value education in America so much. And then in reality, there's like so many lies there. Um, and I think that made me want to understand both like the history of my students' families in Eastern North Carolina, but also like my own history. And what is the narrative like American history tells us about immigrants and what is the true story of like my own family um, and what's our role here and stuff like that. So. I mean, at a high level, I think that's like the quest I've been on for the last like 10 years, roughly, and have found um, ROI and the work that we're doing in the community and the, some of these processes, design thinking, systems mapping, um, even a lot of the science about the brain and the body, like have found those to be much more real sources of truth than a lot of the narratives that are out there already. And just like being able to be in relationship with people that have lived experience and together just like share our real stories and write that stuff down and then listen and talk about like what independent of what everyone else says the reality should be like what do we want to be real and like what do we believe is most important like what are the stories that the things we feel in our body are telling us about like what we experience what our ancestors experience i've just found that stuff to be like so much more authentic and real than a lot of the other learning experiences I've ever had. And I think some of what Seth was saying of just like the specific body-based practices and things and what the science says about your nervous system, a lot of that stuff allows us to be a lot more present in understanding just like who we actually are and what our narratives are and how that influences how we interact with the world and kind of healing from some of the past trauma I think we've all experienced can create this unique window to like retell our story. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's um, at least how I try to approach just everything. And it's been, I mean, it's been like quite a journey, but feel really thankful in the last few years to like very much have the space to get closer to that. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, again, y'all, I'm, I'm smiling because I was like, obviously know you guys and we're, we're friends and we're just incredibly proud of just everything you've been able to put out into the world and locking arms with communities to, to demand more. So I'm grateful for that. Um, so if you think about the work you guys, you guys are leading, um, like what, what is like the a big thing that someone could take away from your work? Uh, what, is, what is one thing you'd, you'd want folks to take away from, from your stories? I think that one of the things that comes to mind for me that Seth and I just always talk about I mean, more and more lately is that um, when we talk about these like big scale shifts, you know, like how do we shift from a, a society that is punitive to one that is healing, um, things like that, it can feel really daunting. Like you, you gotta have a equally big uh, intervention or action that you're taking to like, how do we ever circumvent that? Or how do we ever overcome that? Um, and I think, you know, like something that we've started to learn and, and probably have learned more so from a lot of the local leaders who've been doing this stuff for generations is that it's like less about that. And it's more about like the sum of all these tiny actions and like every little instance, 
that you're practicing uh, like a healing or resilience building skill in a meeting or every little instance when you kind of stop and slow down and connect with someone to process something that's really difficult. Like all those things feel meaningless. Like people are like, oh, this one time if I, uh, you know, spend this extra second with a kid rather than uh, just disciplining them immediately, like how is that going to matter? But really, I think what we know and see is that like the sum of all those tiny, tiny actions all the time is what adds to this massive change. And so that has become very much like a guiding star or like mantra for me. And, and I would hope that people, when they kind of look at our work and what a lot of our partners are doing, would see or acknowledge that it's like these tiny intentional habits over time that hopefully will lead to this large scale change. I gotta say, I needed to hear that myself just now. Um, like so badly, Vita, you have no idea. I think the you know, as educators, I mean, you guys know this, right? Like when you're in the classroom, you felt it too, but we like, I still feel it as a, even as a principal, like there are times where I'm just like, is what we're doing enough? Right? Like, are we reaching enough? Are we changing the system at all? You know? And so, gosh, like hearing that is like, okay, we are enough. And, and we just need to keep doing these small things every day. I appreciate that. Uh, Seth. That, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Seth said that reminds me of like uh, the lily pad theory or something that we used to, we would talk about. Um, I, I won't be able to like, you know, share it as eloquently as like you can, but uh, could you offer, you offer like how change works through like the, are you able to do that through the little pad theory? Yeah, I mean, be careful here. You're gonna have to cut me off. Uh, uh oh. I just love this stuff. I mean, it all connects. Like Vichy talking about tiny habits adding up to this big thing that you can't see. To me, that's compound interest. Like our brains as humans are, we can only process information linearly. So, like, if I tell you I'm gonna give you ten dollars a year for the next ten years, you can process. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, all the way up to hundred dollars at the end of 10 years. If I tell you that I'm going to give you $10 and it's going to double every year, our minds can't comprehend that. Like we literally can't track exponential growth. Uh, and like what Vichy is talking about with tiny habits adding up is like over time, it looks like it's this flat line, but it's actually doubling and building. And all of a sudden that doubling happens exponentially. And so the lily pad theory is that if you have a pond and there's one lily pad on day one, and that doubles every day. Two lily pads on day two, four lily pads on day three, eight lily pads on day four, it keeps doubling. It's not until the 29th day that the pond is half full, and on the 30th day, the pond is totally full. And so if you watch, if you observe the pond for 30 straight days, it looks like nothing's really happening. And then all of a sudden on day 29, it's halfway there, and on day 30, it's fully there. And on day 31, it's twice as full as it was the day before. It's a little theoretical, but like the idea and takeaway is just that uh, small consistent actions add up and can compound in ways like we can't comprehend in the present moment. And like the realities we are all living in are compounded for better and for worse. Like technology is a story on one side of a, like abundance and has made our world a lot more abundant. And like we live unimaginably better than people a hundred years ago or people 500 years ago. And at the same time, like things can compound the other direction. Like if you steal or take something from someone and never repay that debt, it can compound in the negative over time. And like, it'll take a bigger maybe intervention later to like write that scale or like balance that. Um, but yeah, like compound interest just like sets me on fire. Uh, everyone should open a retirement account if they're lucky enough to have disposable income. Uh, 
just like in all aspects of life, tiny hat. Like we, we do not, we cannot comprehend how small, like I'm making it really concrete in a classroom or in a work setting. If you started every day and every interaction with taking 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 90 seconds to balance your own body and to balance other people's body and say, we're going to regulate right now and we're going to come into our bodies and we're going to focus on our breath. If you did that every day for a school year or for a year of working in an organization, all those people would be radically different by the end of that year. Mm. But you wouldn't see like some instant transformation from doing it one time or from doing it 10 times. But if you did it consistently every day, if you took three minutes at the start of every class to practice a meditation breath or to co-regulate together, you would lead to less fighting. There would, there would be these like things downstream of that that would be real tangible impacts, but they're not instant and they happen because you commit to things over time. And so like one big mistake we make is we try something and then we, we pull out and we stop before we give it the chance to double or before we give it the chance to like compound and see the benefit of it. Uh, I just got to like echo Jenny here, man. I, I needed that more than you probably know, man. Uh, and, and thank you for, for reminding me of that, uh, especially in the, in, the, you know, in the moment that we're in, like pretty heavy and pretty challenging. And um, so thank you for, for, for giving me the gift. So um, yeah, I wanted to take us to the next question. Um, what, what is the future that, that you two dream of? I dream of a future where kids and adults are not punished and isolated for the hardest things that have happened to them and instead are met with healing and support and restoration. I mean, across the board, and this comes from community members and leaders and the systems mapping process, but like we punish people left and right because we ourselves can't hold hand, handle or hold their trauma or the hard things that have happened to us or to them. And like, I dream of a future where uh, organizations are like designed to hold, support, heal, see the like trauma that people have going, have, has been happening since like the beginning of time and has been getting passed through generations. Um, I mean, I dream of a future where the more hard things that have happened to you, the more restoration and like the more opportunities you experience uh, for growth, not less. I dream of a future where like kids and families are celebrated and like seen as assets instead of being like criticized and judged. Um, I mean, ultimately like we have a system that is reproducing, it's like privileging a certain minority of people over and over through generations. And like, I dream of a future where that's not true. And where people who have had things taken from them are repaid and have access and real opportunities to like experience healing and build wealth. Thanks for that, Vici. What do you, what is the future you dream of? Yeah, I mean, so much of what he said just totally resonates. Um, yeah, I just dream about like, I think about this a lot. I feel like, so much of our culture and interactions are just literally steeped in white supremacy. And that is one way of being that leads to sort of privileging certain groups of people. It leads to punitive interactions. It perpetuates these like generations of trauma that lives in our body, but it's not the only way that humans have ever been. And like, this is where it's, I get back to like reclaiming our narrative and understanding our history. Like there are other ways, there are other cultures and ways of being that aren't about that and that are about like, uh, you know, support and connection and sort of communal uh, benefits. Like we all sort of, you know, like it takes a village, like people supporting each other, people providing more support through hard times, coming together to, pers to persist. Um, we see examples of that in like 
our, you know, the, the families and ancestry of the kids that we teach. I see examples of that in my own family history. Um, I just dream of a world where we can like pull ourselves out of the like swamp that is white supremacy culture and like look around and say that actually like within all of us, there's a different way that we can be. And that way can be about healing and connection and support um, and authenticity and like living out sort of more of our own like aspirations. Um, and so that's kind of abstract, but again, I think like these, like if we live that out in all of our interactions on a tiny basis every single day, like the more people doing that, I think can like really shift away from this sort of like punitive zero sum toxic fear-based culture um, to one where we just like let our guard down a little bit and like support each other and like acknowledge that you're not gonna make hard stuff go away, but that there's a really different way of going through it that isn't like competing with each other, but could just be like supporting each other so that we can all have like better relationships with ourselves and also with like the planet we live on and all that stuff. Man, thank y'all. Um, I think like so many of us want that, right? The healing, the connection, support, authenticity, and sometimes folks just don't know what to do to get there. Could, could you guys live in the science for a little bit? Um, so like what, what is like the, the, like the biological like impact that this, this like trauma have on the body? Um, so that folks can, can um, really kind of understand like, uh, you know, why, what the importance of like having these like different like responses in place, healthy responses in place to trauma. Yeah, thank you so much for lifting that up. Uh, and kind of like both to answer your question, Jenny, and your question, Donnell, and then like to Vici's core value of seeking the truth. Like, I think the science is one of the most liberating things. And so uh, really specifically, and like not an expert, there are people who know way more than us in our community who have been here for a long time. They would be great future guests on hummingbird stories but on a real simple level uh feel free to do this if you're listening right now but if you put the if you put your hand on the back of your head this is your survival part of your brain it's the oldest part of your brain reptiles and mammals share this and it controls the fight or flight response that beachy's talking about um and it's actually like two different we talk about fight or flight a lot but we don't talk about freeze submit and collapse and so your, your nervous system actually can go into one of two spots um, and just gonna go for it fully and then happy to like, there's just a wealth of information out here. So I would encourage anyone to like dig more deeply into this because the deeper you dig, the more validated you will be in the science and the practices of like regulating and taking care of your body and mind. But uh, connected to our brain is this nerve called the vagus nerve. And it, it's called the wandering nerve Resmo Medican writes about it. It literally starts in our, the base of our head, wraps through our throat, wraps around our heart, wraps around all our major organs, our stomach, our lungs. And it's why you feel stress physically. When you get a lump in your throat or your chest constricts or you feel a pit in your stomach, that is your vagus nerve reacting to stress in your environment and giving your body a physical signal that we are not safe. And when your body decides that you're not safe, it is gonna either get amped up and that's where it's gonna fight or flight. It's gonna fight the threat or it's gonna run away from the threat. Or when the body says we're not safe, it's gonna shut down and it's gonna freeze, play dead, or just collapse. And uh, sometimes when you see students in schools who are fainting a lot, their nervous system literally might be overtaxed and the fainting might be like a survival response. Um, 
And then the other part where this all connects, the other part of our brain, if you touch your forehead, is your prefrontal cortex. And this is what makes us uniquely human. Everything that we ask a kid to do in school or that we ask an adult to do in the workplace, whether we're teachers or in an office building, lives in the prefrontal cortex. Our ability to plan into the future, our ability to communicate, our ability to process language and information, all of that lives up here in the prefrontal. Uh, now, the majority of energy in our body is going to the survival part of our brain. It's managing our blood pressure, our digestion. It's doing all of these functions that we don't consciously think about. About 10% of our energy is going to the prefrontal cortex and to critical thinking and to all the things we ask a kid to do in school. So when you ask about like, what happens on a biological level, when there is a threat, there's a almond-shaped thing in the back of our head called the amygdala, and it's the smoke detector of the brain. And when there's a threat, the smoke detector goes off. And if I was online and I was thinking out of my prefrontal cortex, I'm now offline and I'm think and I'm in my survival brain and not trying to be too long winded on it, but a story that kind of ties all the science together. Jenny, when, when we were teaching together, one of our students who we loved dearly and was an amazing kid really struggled in math. Uh, and he was doing really well on his math assignment this one day in our classroom. And I went up to him and I patted like patted him on the shoulder, kind of like you're doing great. And he flipped, he went from zero to 60 and he flipped the desk. He wanted to fight. He was cursing me out. And so his body had a fight reaction and we were able to get him out in the hallway, get him calmed down. But what his mom told us later after school that day was that when he was one and two years old, he was very physically abused by an uncle and his family. He doesn't have any conscious memory of that. That doesn't live in his prefrontal, but it lives in the survival part of his brain. So when I touched him, his body said, I am not safe. And his body did whatever it can to get safe as fast as possible. And the survival part of the brain works way faster than the thinking part of the brain. So we're seeing in ourselves and in others, people having automatic responses that are not inherently bad. It's the body doing the best it can with the resources it has to get safe. But we, the whole thing is about like teaching different coping behaviors and trying to build practices and culture and habits where we are able to get online. So when we ourselves, when our life get flipped, how do we slow down like Vichy's talking about and get ourselves back online? Or when a student is having their lip flipped, how do we support them to get back online? And the huge thing here, and this is a big thing for teachers and schools, our number one intervention is talking. When you are coming from the survival part of your brain, the brain cannot process words. It can't, like it physically cannot process words. So if a kid is amped up or shut down, and we're lecturing them and hitting them with words, their brain is literally not hearing it. And so we need to try a different intervention. There's that old like definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. We gotta try a different thing. And the tools VTS is talking about, scanning the room and seeing colors, feeling physical sensations of hot or cold. The way you communicate with the survival part of your brain is through the senses, through smell, touch, seeing, uh, feeling, and so we gotta do things that are somatic based, that are senses based, that get us back into our body and brain so we can be back online and operating out of that prefrontal cortex. Thank you, that was awesome. <laughs> and um, so, so as, like, as you guys know, um, schools across our state um, are currently in, you know, in a hybrid model or they're currently um, completely virtual. Um, and many schools across our state are now thinking, and districts across our state are now thinking about school reopening in the spring. 
Um, but, but as we know, like many of our students um, uh, in communities where like schools have been closed for months um, have faced like trauma um, at an, you know, an, an exacerbated rates, right? Um, so from, from that financial crisis to like domestic violence and potentially students grieving um, the loss of loved ones who, um, because, of, because of the contagion. Um, what advice do you have for, for, for school leaders, district leaders, teachers who who are, are are planning to reopen in the in the fall i'm in the spring and we'll have to respond um to you know the trauma that our students have faced like what is the like what is what should they be thinking about what is the first big step they can take uh towards healing and supporting kids to uh, as, as seth put it to, to to get back into their prefrontals yeah i think it's i mean it's like incredibly challenging it's almost like uncharted territory um and so that probably isn't like a like healing isn't really the kind of thing that has like a silver bullet. I think again, it's like all about the tiny habits. Um, but I think I would be thinking about just like how like what are we prioritizing and how are we designing the environment. So I, I feel like there is maybe a impulse to to think about like the learning loss and like it, the tests that are coming up and like these facts and like all this stuff that has to be covered um, and a lot of like urgency around that, that I think in and of itself might be coming from a survival place. Um, and just maybe taking a second to slow down and say like, what are some practices we can infuse just like throughout the day more intentionally that allow us all the opportunity to like slow down, uh, feel whatever it is that is happening to us in our body right now and just like work through that. So this kind of abstract like trauma or whatever we talk about that isn't just like this thing that you consciously think about it it literally like lives inside your body and it will feel like something and so you know when Seth's saying like this vagus nerve might make your stomach tighten up or it might make you feel tired or dissociated or you might feel extra jumpy and amped up like that's a real that's like that energy is going to manifest throughout the school day both for adults and kids in different settings and uh, I think a lot of times we try to kind of push that away and say like, hey, stop, you know, stop jittering and just like sit still because we got to get through this lesson. And I mean, maybe even for adults, it's like we hold back a lot of stuff and we're just like, man, I can't let kids see. I got to get pushed through this. Um, and then, I mean, I think in this moment, like healing is like just letting that stuff, letting your guard down a little bit and being like, look these are the things that we might feel or see maybe having like open conversations, building common language about like the brain and, and having giving kids and adults both the language to like know what it means when your lid is flipped or when you're offline and then be able to say that and then support each other to respond in those moments with a, a tool you can practice or just compassion or maybe you need a minute and like, hey, do you want to take a walk? You want to step outside and press against the wall for a second maybe giving staff also just like the moment to say like i need five minutes like can i take a walk and get a sip of water um yeah i mean that's sort of what i would be thinking about is just like creating the space for healing to occur when it's going to occur rather than like burying it further and just like it's going to come out at some point um so how are we just like supporting each other to kind of be differently and like push the boundaries of the rigid structure that maybe we were used to before but doesn't have to come back Hmm. Yeah, and building just a couple specific, uh, like to build on what you're saying, Vichy, uh, we've seen people have success with this idea of listening circles or healing circles or restorative circles 
like just comes from the restorative justice framework, but there's a, you're sitting in a circle, you have a talking piece, and people get a chance to just pass the talking piece around and share what's been hard for them lately. And like having that practice for 10, 15 minutes to start the day, either as like a staff, like just adults do that, or to do that in your classroom where kids get to do that alongside teachers is a regulating intervention. It brings our flipped lid back online. It brings us back into our bodies. Um, the, the thing about our breath is that it, without consciously thinking about it, we breathe successfully, but our breath is like the one thing we can consciously control. So if we focus on our breath and we slow it down and we breathe in certain patterns, it will send a message to the rest of our body and to our nervous system and brain that we're safe. And so uh, there's different breathing techniques that come from yoga and Buddhism and Hinduism and different ancient traditions that they figured out thousands of years ago that modern science is now validating. We actually, for one of our like biofeedback breathing programs, we have like a set of 10 posters that have like different breathing exercises. If we could put them on like the show notes potentially where people could download that and use that for their classroom or for themselves. Um, yeah, but, and then just Beach's idea of like fractals and practicing what we preach. Like, it's not just what do we need to do for the kids? It's like, what do we need to do for the staff and each other mm. to let ourselves take three minutes to do a breathing exercise as a staff or to take 15 minutes to do a listening circle at the staff meeting. And there's this like very real time pressure. Like I have 60 minutes to teach my math lesson. I can't do anything else. If you take 15 minutes to focus on regulation and building resilience and allowing people to get into their bodies and brains and still do 45 minutes on math. If you do that every day, I can't, I highly bet that the students will have better outcomes in that classroom than a classroom that solely drills the math instruction without giving the opportunity to like process the stress in our body, get our brain online, get back into our bodies. Thanks y'all. And I feel like what you guys just named too, even if people don't return to school in person or if students opt to continue to learn virtually, like those are things that can definitely still happen virtually. Um, and so I just wanna encourage everybody to, to do that. For us at our leadership team meetings, we always start with some kind of breathing or physical um, something or other, whether it's like some quick, a quick stretch or just a minute to breathe. And our meetings are wildly productive and, and positive because of it, you know? But uh, y'all make me reflect that because I don't do that in every single meeting. Um, I have a story sometimes that teachers are too busy and I don't wanna live into that anymore. So I'm, I'm committed to changing that practice and honoring our, our teachers and their, their wholeness. Uh, and I wanna encourage everybody else out there to do it. So I wanna shift real quickly uh, to communities because we got a lot of other people outside of schools who also really care about uh, phenomenal childhoods in their communities. So what advice would you all give to, to those folks? Yeah, really, uh, just a couple of like small mindset type things that we try to root in and that we've learned from leaders locally in Edgecombe County and Nash and Wilson counties. Um, I mean, we're big on just like this idea of like chop wood, carry wood, like do the specific action. And it's like, what are we doing today? Chopping wood and carrying wood. What are we doing tomorrow? Chopping wood and carrying wood. And it kind of goes back to that idea of like, sometimes there isn't a shortcut and we should just like stick to the process and like trust the process um, and follow it. And sometimes our like desire for a hack is like distracting us from the path that's in front of us that we can go down. Um, yeah, and I think just like a couple of core values we try to like reflect on and bring into our work uh, are around supporting people to like live in their power and let their gifts shine. 
just from being a special ed teacher, like really big on that we all have strengths and gifts. And uh, if we focus on what we're good at, that's like we're in our zone of genius. And if we are in environments that only focus on our deficits, we're like being robbed of a chance to be our best selves. Like if, uh, if we would have taken a 12 year old Michael Jordan and said, you're really good at basketball, but you stink at swimming. How about you go learn how to be Michael Phelps? Like the world would have never seen Michael Jordan. Um, and then, yeah, just like we're big on embracing and trying to like seek out accountability and put ourselves in spaces where like people think differently from us. Like criticism isn't bad. We say to each other a lot, like resistance is actually the place where change begins. And often like opposition validates the idea that change must come. Um, yeah, and then maybe lastly, it's still a little too philosophical, but like uh, looking at things from like a macro level or a systems level, often we already have the resources we need in the system. It's just the relationships are not connected in the optimal way and the resources aren't connected in the optimal, optimal way. Um, so I think sometimes it's like anything but trauma, stress, it can become like, I can't address that because I don't have XYZ resource. And often there are assets and people and resources in our midst that we might not be like tapping into or honoring. And so it's about like trying to change the relationships of existing resources to get the goals or outcomes we're going after. Beautiful. What about you, Vichy? Any advice for um, folks outside of schools who want to create phenomenal childhoods? Yeah, I think maybe just to like build on or add on to some of the things Seth shared. Um, one thing that comes to mind is that like we often, I mean, in a lot, I think in a lot of sort of helping or serving professions, like uh, we spend so much time thinking about the people we serve and like how, you know, how can we help uh, kids or families or, you know, have a better experience and all this stuff. Um, but a lot of the times, I think the healing really starts with like us. And especially when, you, when you're in doing community work and you have a lot of proximity to people's challenges, even if they aren't yours, they call it like a secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. Like you end up internalizing a lot of what other people are experiencing. And even that can have these like tangible effects on our nervous system sort of our emotional gas tank of like how much you're actually able to give. Um, I think a lot of folks who like the people that kind of are mean, you know, have the most, the best intentions or, are really working hard for kids and families often like neglect what they're actually taking on. And part of it is like, oh, then you get burnout and you feel bad. Um, but there's another part of it where you actually are less able to better to like support other people. Like when your own nervous system is taxed, you are more likely to become amped up or shut down, to have your brain go offline. And in those critical moments, like that might lead to a more punitive response in a situation that didn't have to go that way. Um, and I think this is uh, particularly prevalent in maybe uh, really high stakes professions, law enforcement, things like that, first responders, where like folks don't ever go into those interactions wanting to cause harm. But when you have taken on so much of other, you know, like so many stressful and emotionally challenging situations without stopping to care for your own nervous system, like at some point, it's way more likely that an interaction might cause you to go offline and do something pretty harmful. So I think, you know, as part of like creating this more healing culture, we all have to think about healing ourselves. And like, it's okay. And sometimes it might be those little in the day practices. Sometimes it might be like, you got to take a day off or, you know, figure out like what's that rejuvenating resource for you and tap into that to 
be able to sustain this work longer and kind of minimize the amounts of times that we're offline and operating that way. So, I mean, that's kind of what comes up for me, I think, in addition to some of the things that Seth said. Yeah, thanks for saying, Deek. Um, so, yeah, how can how can folks learn more about the work you guys are leading? How can they plug in? How can they lead something similar for their communities? Yeah, it's a great question. We've never, we always joke that like uh, communications and stuff isn't our strength. So, <laughs> uh definitely been trying to get better at it but we we do have a newly launched website um which is ruralopportunity.org which people said our old website they either didn't know about it or didn't they read the whole thing and still didn't understand what we were doing so hopefully this is better um but yeah would encourage anyone to kind of start there um just kind of get a sense there's a lot of different i mean we've just been trying to offer kind of different ways of support so like for folks who are more local um if there's interest in like doing a training with your staff, like a one to two hour training on just like how does stress and trauma impact my staff in these scenarios, um, have like a big base of locally certified trainers across a bunch of different sectors um, who have been living this stuff and doing it daily and would be able to kind of plug into that. Um, I think Seth alluded to listening circles and like we have some folks locally that are able to lead those types of things for like, a, like if you have a group of staff returning to school or even for youth, like can provide support on facilitating that. Uh, working on being able to support folks who wanna try to do biofeedback breathing in their context. Um, so like a technology enabled meditation that uh, we've been able to support in a school setting and in a county jail setting, but like kind of different things like that. Yeah, very uh, willing and excited to be able to support folks kind of wherever you are in the journey if any of those things feels like yeah we really want to try this to take the first step um would encourage you to check out the website email us like reach out on the contact form uh yeah i don't know Seth, if you got kind of additional things to add there yeah uh shout out to teammates tyron payton who just set up a real opportunity facebook and instagram i think we're now as of days ago you can go to facebook slash nc real opportunity or just on Instagram at Real Opportunity. Um, and then I'm a huge just like learner at heart. Uh, so it's like reading material that has meant a lot to us. Um, Dorian of the Keenan Trust has written different articles in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, and he talks a lot about like being asset-based in how you approach work in communities. Um, and then the acumen.org has a series of like free online courses and we found their systems mapping course and others to be really helpful. Um, Engaging Inquiry is like a consulting firm in Durham that supported us with our systems mapping process. Uh, Acumen also does like a human-centered design course with partnership with IDEO that we found really helpful. And then just a couple books, if there's like book lovers out there, um, Emergent Strategy, Social Thinking for Social Change, um, Systems Thinking for Social Change, excuse me, Upstream, uh, the Deepest Well by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Medikin, The Body Keeps Score, um, The Boy That Was Raised by a Dog. The last four were trauma ones. The first three were more like strategy and systems thinking books. Um, but yeah, just reach out on the website. I just want to connect with other people and continue on this journey towards like moving away from punitive responses and towards healing and restorative ones in our own life and in different organizations and programs.
We'll be sure to share all of these in the show notes um, so y'all can hit it up there, including those breathing exercises. We'll have to get those from you, Seth. Sounds great. For sure. So listen, y'all, let's let's keep uh, chopping wood and, and carrying wood. There's more work in front of us so that we can one day realize the, the future that and the, uh, that we do well dream of. Um, so you guys are, are creating better communities. You are creating better childhoods. And you are hummingbirds. Well, that's it. Thank you for tuning into the Hummingbird Stories. Please share our podcast with the people you love and rate it wherever you get your pods. Follow Jenny on Twitter at Omira Jen. Follow me on Instagram at Martin Luther Can Jr. Hummingbird Stories is made by Ali Lindenberg, Jenny Omira, and me, Donnell Cannon. Original music by 8th grade student, DX4L. Hummingbird Painting by 8th grade student Jocelyn Hernandez. A special shout out to Nebin Ranch, who always reminds us, why not us? Thanks to the Ed team for their never ending support.